0: The Project Upland Podcast is brought to you in part by Pine Ridge Grouse Camp, Adventure Awaits, and by Onex Maps, Know Where You Stand. You're tuned in to the Project Upland Podcast, I'm your host Nick Larson. Welcome to the show for episode number 48. The Project Upland podcast is brought to you by Pine Ridge Grouse Camp, the finest rough grouse and woodcock hunting experience in northern Minnesota. Check them out at pineridgegrousecamp.com and by Onyx Maps. Download the hunt app today in the Apple iTunes or Google Play Store. Check out Onyx Maps, most comprehensive mapping application for outdoors men and women, OnyxMaps.com. And by Gumleaf USA, high-quality, handcrafted, premium rubber boots. Check them out at gumleafusa.com. Use the promo code PU2018 for free shipping from gumleafusa.com. And finally this week, new sponsor for you, new sponsor for the Project Upland Podcast for 2019. Really excited to bring on board Dog Trick Collars. If you're not familiar with them, I highly suggest checking out Dogtra Collars. I've used a Dogtra Collar ever since I got my first bird dog four years ago. I've had a Dogtra Collar from day one. I have the ARC. I love it. They make a great product, and we will be telling you a lot more about them over the next year. So thank you, Dogtra Collars. To all the listeners, you're in the market for a new hunting or training collar for your bird dog, I highly suggest you check out Dogtra. This week's winner of the podcast giveaway is Jeremy R., from tennessee jeremy shared our podcast post on facebook thank you for doing that jeremy you got some project up gear headed your way real soon you the listener could be next week's winner of the project up and podcast giveaway all you got to do i remind you every week make a meaningful contribution to this show you can do that in any of these ways leave us a rating leave us a review subscribe to the podcast share the podcast post Or send us some listener feedback, a guest suggestion, podcast feedback, anything. Hit me up anytime. My email is nick.larsen at northwoodscollective.com. All right. Happy New Year, everybody. Excited to be back with you. Kicking off the Project Upland podcast in 2019. We're back with you in full force. Expect regular production of the podcast coming your way for the rest of the year. We've got some big things that we're going to do in 2019. Not only on this podcast, but at Project Upland, Northwoods Collective in general. Hope you're all looking forward to it. I'm excited about it. We'll keep stuff coming your way. On today's show, we interview a personal friend and a member of the Project Upland team. He is the editor of the newly released Project Upland magazine, as well as Covey Rise and the Rough Grouse Society magazine. Our guest today is Matt Soberg. We chat all about his current projects, what he's working on with the magazines We talk a little bit about his 2018 hunting season. We talk bird dogs, shotguns, the usuals. Let's kick off today's show. Welcome to the Project Upland podcast, Matt Soberg. All right, Mr. Matt Soberg, welcome to the Project Upland podcast
1: hey nick how's it going
0: thanks for having me going very well matt i appreciate you joining us on the podcast today i'm looking forward to this conversation it's january we're kicking off the new year unfortunately that means uh hunting season is over at least for you and i so with that why don't you why don't you put us on the map matt tell us where you're at and where you most often get into the uplands
1: yeah sounds good i'm uh I hail from the Brainerd, Minnesota area, so if you look at a map of Minnesota and you point exactly to the middle of it, that's pretty much where I where I live, where I work, and, and where I hunt. Um, I'm technically sitting in my office in a little town called Nisswa, which is about 10 miles north of Brainerd. I have little office there where i, I might edit my magazines and do my publishing business from there so um but yeah this central minnesota is kind of my my home territory and so whenever i get free time in the fall i focus mostly on girls and woodcock hunting and uh hunt a lot of the public land here around around the brainerd area
0: so the brainerd area that is kind of you know i always consider it Sort of the Northwoods escape for people coming out of the Twin Cities. It's kind of, it's obviously it's a it's a destination area for people that don't know. It's a destination area. There's lots of lakes. It's it's a Northwoods feel kind of vibe to it. So certainly grouse hunting there. But it's kind of on the border of the forested landscape before you get into the agricultural landscape. Is isn't that correct?
1: Yeah, it, it is for sure. If you go south of Brainerd, you kind of get more into the the ag land. Farm country. Um, if you go north, you get into the it's kind of the gateway to the prototypical Minnesota North Woods yeah. from here. Um, Bra- Brainerd's is about two hours north of Minneapolis and Saint Paul. We're in the we're in the, the stereotypical Minnesota lakes area. So it's kind of a destination tourism area for for boating, fishing, camping, cabins, all that fun stuff in the summer. And you know, honestly. It's, yeah, I've hunted around here a lot, um, both white-tailed deer and wild turkey and a grouse and woodcock, and it's pretty good hunting around here. I don't, you know, the bird, not, not, there's not a lot of bird hunters in this area, but there's still a lot of public land. So if a guy wants to get out and hunt in central Minnesota, there's certainly enough opportunities to do that in plenty of areas, you know, a lot of, a lot of habitat management done by, by the counties around here. And so there's a, a lot of good habitat to hunt. It's, it's you know, the bird hunting is probably not as good as, as maybe Northern Minnesota, but, uh, but it's not bad. And, and, uh, I got a couple, couple sneaky spots I like to sneak out to
0: when I can. Yeah. I feel like that's kind of a common thread amongst when I, when I speak to Minnesota bird hunters, myself included, I mean, we really, there, there's so much there, there's so much public land and it's not that hard to find birds. Like you said, it, it, you might not have the huge, expansive tracks of awesome cover, but more than likely, most people in Minnesota are not too far from a couple of those sneaky good spots for bird hunting.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And luckily, we have we have counties. We, you know, we have the paper industry and the, the logging industry that naturally um kind of drives some of the habitat management that happens around here. And then we've had some counties and. And especially in central Minnesota, some counties like like Cass County that have really um, done a really good job over the years of, of managing their lands. And when when they log some of those county-owned pieces, as we all know, it creates young forest habitat that grouse and woodcock need. And there's a lot of spots out there. I'm you know that maybe maybe the old guard of grouse hunters really like to keep their spots to themselves. Um, and I have a couple spots that I like to do that too, but for the most part, I, I don't have any problem sharing spots with people and trying to help get more more hunters out out in the woods. Um, it doesn't bother me to see other bird hunters around because, luckily for us Minnesotans, there's plenty of other public land spots to find. And for me, that's half the half the fun is to try to get out there, um, walk the trails, find new spots. And every year I find an, an, another. New spot or, or two, and and uh, I really enjoy that part of it
0: too. Yeah, that that's another another common theme with a lot of people bring up that I talk to on this podcast is the the sense of adventure and exploration that upland bird hunters seem to have, and and especially when we're talking about large tracts of public land where you can kind of wander without borders and just go wherever you want. That that sense of adventure really drives a lot of people, and, and obviously if you've got a dog out in front of you, even more so. But but that's very cool. Now, I know you're a busy guy, but we did just finish up hunting season, and I know you do some, I know you do some bird hunting. What, uh, how was the 2018 season for Matt Sober?
1: That's a great question. Um, I was trying to prepare to answer that question and, and thinking back to some of the hunts I had. Um, <laughs> compare, comparing it to last year it was probably about the same as last year maybe a little better um, for me personally uh, last year was tough for everyone but if a guy still got out there and you know wore down some boot leather a guy would still find birds and now I think that held true for me this year um, luckily just the way the woodcock hunt kind of happened and you know they didn't they didn't all fly through within a week you know i i kind of found that they, they i had some really really dandy woodcock humps this year and it was a little more prolonged than what i was used to in the past and so they they stuck around and i don't know if that was due to weather or what honestly but a couple of my good woodcock spots were, were good for quite a long time which was nice for me because now i had two dogs two english setters and one is six years old and you know, he I just kind of let him roll. He's he hangs in there, and then but I have a, a puppy who at the time was you know ten months old, and you know getting into the wood those good woodcock hunts and a couple of them were almost too too crazy with with lots of birds, but a lot a lot of wild bird contacts for my puppy, which en- ended up being sort of a a blessing in disguise for for the the few times I did get out this fall.
0: Excellent, that's good to hear. Yeah, the the woodcock flight that's always it's such an interesting you know, so local. I think it's very localized. Like even from what you experienced was probably different than what I experienced And all things considered, we're not that far apart, but yeah, when, when they do stick around until the end of that 45 day season, that's always nice. That has been the case for me this year. Although when it got right down to the last week this year, I, the woods were pretty sparse. A lot of them a lot of them took off a little bit earlier this year, which was kind of interesting. I actually just got done tallying up a bunch of my numbers. I keep fairly detailed statistics of, of my hunts. It's just something that I enjoy doing. And I had a I had an increase in grouse flushes this year, so that was good. But I had a decrease in woodcock flushes. And I, I couldn't really explain that because I remember a lot of people were saying that woodcock were st- – it was a really good year for woodcock and people were seeing birds everywhere. And, and it's not that, not that I didn't have good success, but again, that just kind of speaks to the the variability and the localized nature of, of woodcock flights. You just never quite know.
1: Yeah. You never quite know. I, I mean, I've been to, wasn't this year, but last year, I know for sure. One spot I went to one morning, traditionally a good woodcock spot, you know, really young Aspen can hardly even walk through it. One morning I went in there, and didn't didn't point a bird, didn't flush a bird, no birds at all. Went back to the exact same spot the next day, and there were birds absolutely everywhere. So, you know, it's just the uh, kind of the, the nature of the beast when you're when you're woodcock hunting. It's it can be feast or famine sometimes, and and I honestly couldn't tell you the reason why it was bad one day and good the next. It's just the way it goes.
0: Yeah. So you mentioned the bird dogs there. We'll we'll have you. Uh... Share the the breed with us, but it's I find it interesting. You've got a ten month old puppy and a six year old dog. That's about the same position I'm going to find myself in about a year from now. I'm looking forward to that. What kind of dogs do you run, and uh, how did the pup do this this season? Yeah,
1: yeah. So I think the setters. Um, my pups from out of uh, he's a poulter dog out of uh, North Woodsburg dogs, and I really like them. Um, He's very athletic. He uh, he runs hard. He hunts hard. He's he's a little bold, um, which I like. Um, and you know he, he's, he he just seems to have a good trade drive. And uh, he showed some point this last fall, which which I really like to see. I'm I'm not you know especially during their first year. I'm not real hard on him. I kind of just let him roll. And I like I like how he handled. He wasn't too rangy. I would consider him a, a pocket dog, um, right, right. Kind of in the range where I, where I want him to. And he liked to check back. And I don't know. He, it's always funny when people are talking about their dogs. I think, you know, they, everybody kind of knows what they like and everybody likes something a little different. But for me, I think he's a, he's a good match and I'm really looking forward to, to how he, uh, how he progresses here. He, he just technically turned one. His birthday is December 26th, the day after Christmas. And, um, as you mentioned, it's just after the new year, but I am actually heading out next week, driving down to um, Texas, East Texas, and I'm going to. kind of crazy. It's like a 20-hour drive, but I'm bringing my dogs with, and we're going to go down there. I have to work the Dallas Safari Club convention, and then after that, I'm going to stick around for a few days and on some wintering cop down there, too. So uh, that's just another good opportunity to get my pup on birds and try to prolong the season as long as I can.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That sounds like a good plan. I know you've, you've been fortunate enough to make that January trip down south and hunt woodcock down there in the past. Maybe, uh, maybe we'll touch on that a little bit later. Cause I've kind of be curious about hunting woodcock in, in Texas. That's pretty cool. You, you've been able to bring a few bird dogs up. Now this is not, you know, you have two and you've, you've had them before, but it it's funny. You mentioned that puppy season and it is really interesting. In that, I think I think you're going about it the right way. You know, you're not having too high or too low of expectations, and you kind of just let the pup roll. When when my pup was in his first season, that's certainly the approach I took, and and I think I pretty much kept quiet and and didn't interfere too much during that season. So I think I did a good job about that, but that did not stop me from over analyzing everything. I mean, I can look back on some of the things that, you know, my puppy did in that first season. And I just, you know, you have these questions as a first time bird dog owner, did I just ruin the dog or is he not doing this right or that right? And I'm really looking forward to the second dog just so I, I know that I won't have that anxiety because I realized like they're so resilient and they, they, they can just develop through so much of that stuff and and puppies are puppies i mean they just they do funny stuff
1: yeah i totally agree i know exactly what you're saying i've been through the exact same thing and uh and it's a it's a tough thing like i i i've had some bird dogs over the years now and i i learn with each one and and i'm not a professional trainer by any means i don't have the uh financial means to to send my dog to get trained by anyone or anything like that. I try to do it all on my own and I'm not a professional trainer. So I, you know, try to read as much as I can or talk to the right people, talk to the breeder to get as much info as I can. So I'm trying to do the right things, but a lot of it's trial and error. And the one thing I've learned over the the years of of the bird dogs I've had is, is patience. You know, it, it just, it just takes time. Um, Rome wasn't built in a day, and a great bird dog wasn't built in one one hunt. You know, it's just just the way it works. it's I think give the guys patience, you know, and uh, kind of lets it lets it come to him and and figures out um what really needs to happen and when. Uh, you know I think there's definitely potential, and it's 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 kind of the old adage it's it's a little bit of make sure your dog has the right blood, has the right genes. So you set yourself up to, to have a, a good hunting dog, and then it's kind of up to you to take it from there. And, and you know, I always tell myself not to be too hard on myself, not to be too much of a perfectionist, not try to be too hard on the dog, because my thing is, again, I'm not a professional trainer, but I just try to hunt a lot. And I try to get my dog in, in as many wild bird contacts as possible and sort of in a weird way, and I've written articles about this in the past, in a weird way to kind of let those wild birds train the dog let those wild birds kind of teach the dog and the more opportunities that those those dogs have to encounter those birds i think helps more than anything else we can do in training that's just my personal opinion
0: yeah absolutely you you and i are alike in that neither of us are (laughs) expert dog trainers that is for dang sure and yeah it's patience that's probably the number one thing that i know now in hindsight is just be patient and let the dog, you know, keep giving the dog opportunity, get, get them on wild birds as much as you can and keep giving them the opportunity to learn and develop into a bird dog and be patient. I think, you know, I get questions from people that are in the same spot that I was in four years ago and patience is probably the number one thing that I say to them. And it's, and you know, that comes from a little bit of experience on my end and your end, but also it's, it comes from, Good professional trainers. Uh, I will point to an awesome example. Uh, Justin McGrail is a guy that he's interviewed on Ron Baimes podcast a bunch. He was on there recently. They did a two-part episode and I had somebody – was asking me about they have a dog on the way and they were looking for information. And I encourage everybody to listen to every single podcast Ron has done with Justin McGrail, because I, I just think the way that he explains things, he's so level headed and straightforward in the way that he breaks down situations and talks about dog training. I just think it's, it's pure gold for anybody that, that has questions about dog training. I don't know if you've ever heard any of those episodes, Matt. Oh yeah. Yep. Yep.
1: That's all good. That's all good stuff. And any, anytime you can get little tidbits of information that might help you in any of those certain situations you encounter, obviously is a, is a good thing. So, I mean, I, I try to tell myself and and teach myself to, to, um, sort of, you know, appreciate the little things when you're out there, you know, it's, it's not going to all happen and you're not going to, you know, when they're 10 months old, you, you might point some birds, you know, the likelihood of having a, a, the, the most epic, staunch point that you write articles about probably isn't going to happen. And so appreciating the little things and the times that you have with your dog in the woods and, and kind of the, the little hurdles that you jump as you go forward are all things that tell the whole story leading to when that dog is a, a real grouse dog and, and you're really killing it in the woods, you know. So it just, it just takes time and, and that's part of the pleasure that I have. Just spending time with the dogs out there is enjoying those little things that you you, you get to do.
0: Yeah, definitely. It all makes for a pretty good off season conversation too.
1: Yeah, and definitely. Anytime you get to talk about food dogs in January in Minnesota is definitely
0: a good thing for us to be doing. So <laughs> I like it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned you're gonna be working at the Safari Club International Show in Dallas. What the heck kind of a job does a guy have where he gets to go work and go to the Safari Club show in Dallas? <laughs> <laughs> A
1: pretty lucky one, honestly. Uh, I get I get to deal with bird dogs, shotguns, you know, conservation, all that fun stuff every day. I I uh, right now I'm editing three upland hunting related magazines, so I get to do that all the time. I'm I'm uh, going to be working the Covey Rise magazine booth um, down there, so it'll be like Thursday through through Sunday of uh. Whatever date that is next weekend, anyway, sure. and um, yeah, and so it's, it's a typical convention where we're selling subscriptions, talking about editorial, meeting companies, meeting writers, meeting photographers, and all that fun stuff. And it for anybody that might not know, Rise is the hunting magazine based out of Alabama, and it uh, covers a little bit of everything: so quail hunting, grouse hunting, pheasant hunting, um, bird dogs. And we get into destinations and uh, food-related personalities, all of that fun stuff on the the high end of the scale. And then I also edit the new Project Upland magazine um, related to you, related to the Project Upland podcast and the website and the videos and everything else that people are seeing out there for Project Upland. So that's a super exciting project, Um, our Next issue, which is a spring issue, is coming out here real soon. I'm working on that as we as we speak, and and that's that's fun. Um, the Project Upland magazine, just like all the other Project Upland content, is is uh, is new and exciting, and it's really kind of welcoming to um, our three dollar three movement and encouraging people to get out in the woods and and do various things and and uh, hunt many different species of upland birds and. And, you know, we we really pride ourselves of having good writers and good photographers and good design and and, uh, spreading the message about what we do to try to get more people to do it. And then I also, I'm still doing the um, Rough Girl Society magazine. So uh, for the last six years, um, until this last fall, I was the editor and director of communications for the Rough Girl Society. And I've kind of branched out into to focus more on publishing and editorial, but Luckily, I still have my foot in the door of the conservation world, too. So I'm editing the magazine for the Rough Grouse Society, and we're going to continue to do that as we go forward, too. So I'm, I'm kind of lucky. I get to get to do conservation. I get to do sort of the next generation of, of Upland hunters with Project Upland and also kind of honor honor our uh, traditions of the old guard through, uh, through the high, more high-end publication of Cubby Rise. So it's a good, good mix of work, and it's definitely keeping me busy.
0: Yeah, that is a, that's a cool mix. I, ne- I never really thought about it that way, but when you break it down and kind of touch on, I, I'm familiar with your work, of course, as, as the listeners. May or may not know this, but you and I worked together for a couple of years while I was at the Rough Crowd Society, and that's kind of where I, where I really got to know you and and got familiar with your work and and we have uh, since both moved on, but you know stay involved in in different ways. And here we are, kind of both on the same team for Project Upland and and still uh, very involved with RGS and stuff. So it's it's cool to see, but that that's a that's an awesome mix. You know, you've got you got the conservation angle, you've got the sort of Project Upland with its R three and and sort of new exciting adventure and then Covey Rise yeah very much so that kind of the traditional not necessarily a traditional magazine but it but it highlights a lot of the traditions that exist and I think I think that's a that's a nice different flavors to kind of keep you interested.
1: Yeah, and it, you know I I love editorial. I'm kind of like a word nerd to be honest with you, and I like yeah you and are story. Though. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know, I kind of am. I'm, I'm that old curmudgeon guy, you know, that with a red pen that's, uh, editing everybody's work, but I, I try to do it in a friendly fashion. So, um, anyway, I, I, but that's, that's the stuff I love to do. I love to read stories and write stories and help writers and, and just be involved with all of that. You know, the, I don't think the magazine business is going away anytime soon, despite what pe- some people think. And, um, it's some of those stories that, that, we love to read and it's related to the old, the old classic upland books that we love to read. And, you know, we read them in January and February and March during the off season. And it kind of keeps us in the, in the world and keeps us, keeps our mindset going about this, all the things we love about upland hunting and, and, uh, keeps keeps us going in in, in anticipation for fall when we, when we can't actually be in the woods with our dogs doing what we want to do.
0: So. Yeah. Yep. For sure. I know certainly, I, I think my limited understanding is that the world of magazines has absolutely changed, you know, with, with the, the uprising of the internet and, and everything that we have today as far as content consumption. But again, like you said, magazines are not going away. And I know that before project duplin got into a magazine there was a lot of research done uh with surveys through our our listeners uh you know readers followers and you know ultimately the decision was made to to target that market with a with a magazine and i think so far it's been a great success i mean i'm certainly biased but i thought issue 0 was excellent i'm really excited for uh, issue number one coming out here early in 2019. Anything else you can tell us about the Project Upland magazine? What what lies ahead? Exciting stuff. Any any teases for us?
1: Yeah, I don't. I don't want to. I want to keep it keep people in suspense <laughs> a little bit. But um, but yeah, I mean it's it's a, it's it's just good stuff. You know, like um, we got a great a great um article by um Jeff McLaughlin. I will say, coming in the next issue, oh, very cool, uh, yeah, featuring um this the draw hunt with with Brandon Moss, and it's sort of a it's something that we want to do, where you know the, the the great content from that on people have seen on the Project Upland website and also through that that re- that really great video that was put out, and yep. then we also sometimes want to piggyback with with a magazine article too, because you know a really well written magazine article can just enhance the overall story, and I think Jeff did a really great job with that, with some uh, really cool photos from from that, on. so that's 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 really kind of interesting we got we got a couple new contributors involved for this next issue um and some lined up for future issues as well and i think that's a really exciting thing too it's named of uh, people that you haven't seen in the traditional upland magazines um that you we've read over the years um but it's you know it's, New talented people that can write and that can take great photos, and it's, it's really refreshing. And tell 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 some of these upland stories in a little different perspective than maybe we've we've come to uh, to recognize in the past. And I think that's a good thing. So like, you know, the, the magazine thing is is really interesting to me. I like to tell people um, tell people this. So like, Project Upland is, is good at social media and video and, and the website. And sometimes when you see let's say a post on Instagram, you know, it's, it's a picture and a, in a short description, but in my mind, there's always more of a story to tell. You know, it's not just one snapshot of one particular thing that behind every image that you see on Instagram, there's always a story behind it and more, more of a story to tell. And that's, that's kind of the job, I think, of, of the magazine. So you take that snapshot in the magazine in a high quality way with writing and photography, you get to tell the, the rest of the story, you get to tell a narrative of what really happened. And uh, so people kind of, kind of get to dive into the overall experience and the emotions and all of that stuff of it. And, and that's the thing I like about magazines the most is they get to kind of tell, tell the rest of the story and, and hopefully that's something that people enjoy.
0: Certainly it's a, it's a different venue than say Instagram or uh, YouTube video, but yeah, it, it, it's still going to, the project Upland magazine specifically is still going to have that sort of striking visual, you know, effect. Great. Obviously epic photography and to have, to have those stories woven into those images. Yeah. It's the, the first iteration of it. Issue zero was, was excellent. Looking forward to more. When, when are we going to see issue one? Um, in about a month. Okay.
1: So, yep, we're finalizing it now. And then we go through the whole print proofing and print process. So, um, it's it's coming down the pike and then um project up a magazine is quarterly so we kind of follow the seasons we'll be spring summer fall and winter again and so just enough to keep everybody wanting for more and and reading good content and getting us geared up for the hunting season
0: well speaking of magazines i i was reading the an issue i believe it was the latest issue of the rough girl society magazine and I saw a pretty neat article in there about a Camp Ripley RGMA. And for those that are not familiar about that, uh, RGMA is stands for rough grouse management area. It is a Minnesota program where similar to, if you're familiar with Michigan gems, it would be sort of the Michigan gems version of that in Minnesota. Uh, piece of habitat that's set aside for specifically for rough grouse, typically woodcock management and provides often easy access for new hunters, uh, people to get into the woods and get into the right stuff. And this one was, was pretty unique in that camp Ripley is a, it's army base, like kind of a training facility in Minnesota. It's huge piece of piece of land. They do some, they do some archery deer hunting there and they just have a ton of land, so there's obviously lots of wildlife. And I thought this was just kind of a cool project, and and I think I saw you in one of the pictures, so I knew that you were kind of involved with us. Can you give us uh, some more detail on this project?
1: Yeah, it really is a good one. Just like you said, um, our GMAs are, are really neat. Uh, it, it's a really neat program in Minnesota. Um, and this one is, I think, potentially the first tied in directly with the uh, rgs chapter in the state okay so luckily yeah our brainerd based chapter we've really gotten some good people on the committee and uh kind of some young blood involved and we've really tried to grow it over the last four or five years and luckily we have also have some influential habitat related people involved with our chapter so mike north who works for the Minnesota DNR spearheaded this and deserves a lot of the credit. He lives just outside of Brainerd and helped us out to, to essentially get this done through the DNR. But, um, it's unique, like you said. So it's a partnership between, um, the, the DNR, uh, camp Ripley, the military, um, base and the rough drop society and the Minnesota deer hunters association. And also the local um, high school from Pillager, Minnesota, is also involved. So you, you tie in all of those groups all into one, putting their heads together to get this done. And what I created is um, additional public access with plans for habitat management um, to you know, give more opportunities for people to get out and, and hunt whatever they want to hunt or go hiking or go birding. Um, and it's in a really interesting spot. I I think it's about between 200 and 300 acres and um, luckily Camp Berkeley has their own uh, machinery to do the habitat management. So a lot of that we get at a pretty good cost savings because of that. So there's pretty uh, aggressive plans to do habitat management on the property. They've already cut the trails there and I hunted it this last fall and had some pretty decent luck. I'd Flush birds, both grouse and woodcock, and there's really nice aspen in there, and it's, it's kind of a prominent whitetail hunting area, so if anybody wants to do that, and it's just a, overall, you know, we're, we're kind of lucky at the local chapter to be involved in it, and just for for us to feel like we're providing access
0: and, and creating habitat is a good thing for everybody, I think. Yeah, definitely. Those are kind of some of the things that, that I keyed in on, and, and the article is really good in that it you know, for habitat nerds, it, and especially with respect to rough grouse and woodcock habitat, it, it talked about the sort of the forestry plan that they had and sort of the cuts that they were planning to do in order to help shape it into even better habitat. But it was, again, just thought it was an interesting project. I mean, what kind of, as a rough grouse society committee member, chapter member getting involved in a project like that, what kind of joy and sort of satisfaction do you get out of out of seeing that, you know, helping put the sign up and and knowing that you've got that place to hunt and it's there for others too.
1: Yeah, I mean it really is kind of exciting. And luckily we had some key contributors involved in it, including Mike North and the representatives from Camp Ripley, who did a lot of the heavy lifting when it came to the paperwork and getting the actual work done. They did an excellent job on that. But um and then the fact that they included uh, the Rock Rock Society chapter and also other people like the high school, the high school I and mean, Minnesota sort of Deer Hunters Association in it because we can provide a lot of the, the groundwork that's necessary to get some of this stuff done in the future. So we've already talked about little things like maintaining trails and planting uh, fruit-bearing trees and little things that our chapter can do to enhance the habitat there. And it's, it it feels good for RGS, I feel, that, that it happened. And I think it also is good for our chapter and others to uh try to figure out projects like that um going forward and and I think it's good on the ground for habitat, but I think it's also good for recruiting new members of of conservation organizations and and keeping existing members engaged with potential work that that can be done uh for the future so it's
0: it's really all encompassing um a good thing all around I think yeah. Definitely, those are certainly the projects, the kinds of projects that are, they're good to see. I mean, in the state that, that we're in right now, and as far as efforts being made to recruit, retain, and get, get new hunters involved, I mean, it's a, it's a big deal to have that stuff. And I don't know what your, you mean, you kind of touched on a little bit saying that you hunted this spot last year, but I know I've talked about this before. My experience with rough grouse management areas in Minnesota has been, Phenomenal. I mean, I've I've grew up hunting them, and I think a lot of people say that they tend to be, they can be hotspots because the information is out there. You can go right on the Minnesota DNR website and you can look them up and you can find where to park and everything. So I think certainly they do attract a little bit more attention. But with that said, a lot of them are very very sizable pieces of property, and they can support healthy bird populations. And I, I've had some of my best hunts to date on rgmas in minnesota i don't know if you've had similar experiences
1: yeah i have exactly and i've I've had the conversation with Ted dick the uh, minnesota dnr game bird coordinator who also had a a big hand in in working on this particular rgma and and getting it done and we talked about this a lot they just rgmas provide i mean they provide great opportunities to encourage people to hunt grouse which can be tough sometimes. The the trails are oftentimes maintained. Um, The plans are set and where force management has happened in the past is going to continue to happen in the future. And I I like to tell people, if you've never hunted grouse before, go to one, walk the trails, figure it out by trial and error. Eventually, you're going to flush some birds and you're going to figure out where you flush those birds. And through trial and error, you're going to kind of figure out the habitat where they're at, and you can learn a ton by hunting those particular areas. And so I think they're really gold mines that sometimes we take for granted and
0: that people should should hunt more often, I think. Yeah, that's a great point, and that's kind of what, what I would like to highlight with, with those RGMAs, and that is if you're hunting a new area or if you've never checked one out, go to one, look it up, grab the map, check out the DNR website, grab the map, go there. Especially if you're new to grouse hunting, like you said, go there, hunt it, pay attention, observe what kind of, what kind of trees you're seeing. Hopefully you're going to flush some birds, pay attention to where those birds flush. What you'll find is that you'll be able to then replicate what that looks like and, and go outside of that RGMA and find other stuff that looks similar. And I think that's a great way for people to get started and, and continue learning about, how to, how to pursue grouse and woodcock. Yep. That's
1: exactly right. The more time you can spend in the woods, just learning those things and, and figuring it out on your own, the better time you're and the better you're going to get at it going forward too. And, you know, we all want to, want to have success when we're out there. I mean, the, the hunt's not all about that, but obviously the more birds you see, the the more fun fun you have and the more time you spend out there, the more likely you're going to be to to have some good luck.
0: Yeah. Definitely. Now, one thing I didn't ask you about kind of in the early stage of this conversation, but I, I've got a little bit of your, your sort of personal background and history, but how did, how did upland hunting get woven into your life? You know, what were your first experiences like? Who, who got you out there? Or did you do it on your own? What did that look like for you?
1: Yeah. So, um, I grew up in West central Minnesota, a little town called Pelican Rapids, It's about 45 miles east of Fargo Moorhead. And so it was kind of an interesting, interesting spot because we had a, we had a hunting cabin about an hour and a half northeast of where I grew up, where you could go up and deer hunt and and hunt grouse. And then, you know, I wasn't too far from the Dakotas. So I kind of caught my teeth, honestly, hunting peasants more than grouse and woodcock growing up. We spent, went on a lot of trips out to North Dakota and then, uh, my uncle Tom worked in a little town called uh, Regent, North Dakota, south of Dickinson, and I spent a lot of time out there hunting pheasants growing up. And uh, but I but I had sort of had the the opportunity to hunt pheasants in the Dakotas, grouse in the North Woods. We're kind of on the east edge of the the waterfall flyway, so we hunted a lot of ducks too. Um, I grew up with labs. Most of my family had labs, and then I have an uncle and some cousins who had springers. So Grew up with flushing dogs, um, almost my whole life. And then when I got to college, I hunted with a buddy who had English pointers. Uh, hunted grouse and woodcock with him, and I I got what I call pointer fever. And then uh, my first pointer was actually a Brittany. And um and then I started reading, really getting into the old literature and sort of the classical grouse hunting and knowing I'm in. I live right in classic grouse country. I kind of fell in love with English setters and I've had setters ever since. So that's kind of my, my story in a nutshell.
0: The short version of, of how you wound up where you are today, editing and, and, uh, helping to publish three upland hunting magazines.
1: Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> my story is kind of crazy. I'll try to make it short. Um, I actually had my law degree. I was a lawyer for eight years and then When I turned 30, I had what I call a young life crisis and decided I didn't want to do divorces and real estate and criminal law and all that fun stuff for the rest of my life. And I I had been writing a small syndicated outdoor column for some local newspapers and always had a a love for writing and wanted to get into the outdoor media industry. And I kind of felt like writing and editing was my thing, so... Um, just after I turned thirty, I started a small magazine called the Minnesota Sporting Journal. Uh, ran that for three years, and then uh, sold that at about the exact same time I got the job with the Growth Society. So, started editing that magazine, and and uh, kind of just been trying to climb the publishing and editing editing ladder from there. And now I've graduated up to to these three magazines, and feel like I'm I'm pretty lucky. So.
0: Yeah, I think you're doing all right, buddy. I really do.
1: I, I, yeah, it, I always tell people, if, if, um, if you hear me complain, just slap me. Because, again, I get to deal with all upland hunting every day. So it could be <laughs> a lot worse, for sure.
0: That's that's great perspective. That's a good way to look at it. You mentioned Pelican Rapids, and that reminds me of something I was hoping to... I was going to mention this to you when, a number of times when we were chatting, but I was recently in South Dakota in early December on kind of a kind of a work-related trip maybe something that the listeners will hear more about in the near future i've got to get uh got to circle back with the folks that actually had us out there but uh i was there checking out uh it's really a pheasant hunting lodge and there were some other folks there and one of them happened to be a guy that grew up in pelican rapids and he knew who you were he now owns and operates a a pretty awesome taxidermy business His name is i think it was eric johnson is it did i get that right
1: Yep. That's right. Yep. I know Eric pretty well. He's a few years younger than me, um, in high school, but he's always been a hardcore hunter and, and fisherman. And, uh, he's done a really nice job with his, uh, taxidermy business. He's been doing that for quite a while now. I know he's won some pretty, uh, pretty sweet awards, uh, for the work he, he does and, and, uh, you know, he's, a, he's a good guy, does good work, and definitely, I, I haven't talked to him in quite a while, but if anybody's looking for a good taxidermist, I think he does pretty much everything, big game, fish, birds, uh, he does good work on birds, so, um, yeah, so that's interesting, and I, I, uh, did you actually get to hunt with him then? Or?
0: Actually, yeah, we did, we snuck out for a pheasant hunt on the morning of our last day there, so... We, uh, we cool. did do that. It was, it was, it was a lot of us in the field. It was kind of a, a, a real South Dakota pheasant hunt experience, something different for me, but it was pretty fun. And, and, uh, he and I connected, you know, obviously with the, the Minnesota connection and we, we put it two and two together that we both knew you and, and, uh, he had had some fond memories and stuff. And, and obviously, like you mentioned, he's a, he's a huge big game hunter and, and waterfowl bird hunter. He's got a, he's got bird dogs. And so we, uh, we shared a couple of dreams and and told a bunch of stories and and I will certainly echo uh his his taxidermy business is premier taxidermy out of pelican rapids minnesota so if anybody's he it's he's full service he can pretty much do it all and I asked him a bunch of questions about how he kind of got into it and and the training and the education that he's done i mean yeah he's doing it the right way like you said
1: yeah and, and i and I know he's pretty heavily involved with the uh the local Veterans forever chapter there and uh which is always a good thing, you know, anytime you're, you're a business owner but you all, and you're a hunter and you're, you're also mindful of the need for conservation, I always think that's a, that's a good thing, you know.
0: Yeah, absolutely. He's, he's involved with that chapter, I know, and he talked a lot about uh, trap shooting. And he's helping out with the he's helping out with the high school trap shooting, which again anybody in Minnesota is probably getting more and more familiar with the the popularity and the success that that league has had. It's grown like crazy, and I I think that you, and myself, and a lot of people in the outdoors industry certainly have high hopes that we're going to be. We don't need to get all of them, but eventually those kids are going to grow up, graduate. And if they want to keep shooting a shotgun, of course they have the trap ranges. But but I think we hope to to get a lot of those out in the upland fields, and that's uh, that's important to be thinking about.
1: Yeah, yeah, you know, that's interesting. I think we have got to figure out a way to, to get them on it. You know, it's kind of nice because they already have their foot in the door of um, handling firearms. You know, and the safety involved with it, and the shooting, and all of that stuff, which is which is half the battle. You know, and can, and we just got to figure out a way to get more of them to actually transfer those skills and, and those abilities into into the woods and hunting too at the same time so they start buying hunting licenses because we don't we know how that can affect conservation and, and uh, you know, so I don't know. We, we, Keep putting our heads
0: together so we can try to get that figured out. Yeah, exactly. I don't. I don't know that that anybody has exactly the answer yet. And I've I've had this conversation quite a bit with a, with a number of people over the past couple of years. And it's like that's that's what I always say. You know, it's it's kind of obvious, but these kids that are going up through the through the trap shooting leagues. I mean, the hardest, most complex part of hunting is this. You know, I would. For a new person, I think is probably the, the safe handling and operation of a firearm. So the fact that, you know, the, the Minnesota trap shooting high school league has an absolutely incredible safety record. I don't think they've had an accident. I don't, I don't, I shouldn't say that for sure, but I know that they have a very, very good track record of safety. So that, and there's so many kids involved. It just goes to show how good of a job they're doing teaching these kids safe handling and operation of firearms. And, you get that out of the way. It's I, I feel a lot better bringing a, a young person out and hunting over my dog, knowing that they have that kind of experience under their belt. So it's it's a great gateway, I think. And like you said, we've gotta gotta keep thinking about ways that that we can make that happen.
1: Yeah, like the hard parts out of the way, and I don't know. I, I've seen this more than once with bringing a new hunter into the woods. Once you, it, it's not. In, always as magical as I describe it, but it just seems like once you get people on the trail or in the woods and they see a dog point or they see a dog flush a bird and whether you hit it or not, it's so exciting. It it almost like hooks them, you know? And so you got the hard part out of the way and let's get them in the woods and let's hook them with the experience and hopefully they keep doing it in the future too. And it kind of leads into it. I mean, there's a lot of organizations out there and and a big push now for the, the whole mentorship, mentorship uh there's a lot of good programs out there for mentor related programs and and i know it was a it was a push through the rough route society over the last few years you know that mentorship was very very important and i know there's a lot of people within that organization and other hunters that i know even in this area that at least try to make it a point to bring one new hunter out in the woods at least at least one every year and uh sometimes that's all it takes to get people hooked. And if we all did that, you know, it's sort of like a member, get a member kind of thing. If we all did that, we could, we could double our numbers and the more the merrier, I think.
0: Yeah, absolutely. There's something, something obviously that drives us and compels, especially all of us that are, that are in way over our heads into, into upland hunting or any kind of hunting pursuit. I mean, it's, it's in your blood. There, there's something that drives you much deeper, you know, below the surface. And so if you give somebody the opportunity to let that sort of express themselves within that person, that's all it takes oftentimes is just that initial opportunity. And it's not that hard for us to get somebody out in the woods. And, and I'll be the first to say it, I need to do a better job of it. I'm in a, I'm in a place and a position in my upland hunting you know, pursuit where I, I've got to start getting more people in the woods and it's, I'm making it a goal of mine next year to, to take more people out than I did this year. And, you know, I hope others do that too.
1: Yeah, exactly. And and sometimes it's easy as, you know, like me and a few buddies have a, have a yearly drought camp that we do um, up North and, it's as simple as, and we've done this already, we, we've invited people that are, that are hunters, but not maybe particularly grouse hunters, and we've invited them with, and so they get the overall experience of camp, and having a few drinks, and kind of stories, and eating good food, and, and all of those things that are even over and above the hunt, and so some people like that more than, more than the hunt itself, which is just fine, it's again, it's the overall experience, there's still... Can join it with their friends. They're still enjoying the woods. They're still buying hunting licenses, and that's really the goal for for all of these efforts. And I think that's all good stuff.
0: Yeah, definitely. we we could we could probably talk all day about the importance of that, and and uh, we're not breaking news. I know that uh, there's a lot of other people probably uh, nodding their heads in agreement. I mean, the, it's something that a lot of us think about all the time, but but never hurts to bring it up either. Given the fact that you have been able to successfully develop a you know career and a work life within the outdoors industry and, and upland hunting. I mean, do you have any tips for, for people that are interested in that kind of work uh, whether it's specific to writing and editing or just in general and, and kind of a, you know, where to find those opportunities and, and how to make some of them come about?
1: Yeah. A couple of things come to mind. Um, the, the, the the first one is is kind of obvious and cliche. It's just it's just work real hard, you know. push it. If you follow follow your passion. Like honestly I made a lot more money as a lawyer than than I do now, but I decided that quality of life and doing what I love to do is is a better plan and uh and I just kinda of wanted to follow my passion and work real hard to to get get to the goal of, of where I am and, and doing what I do every day. But um I think even more important than that probably. And the second thing I would, I would mention is, um, surround yourself with, with good people. Um, and in that, I mean like quality people surround yourself with, with, you know, mentors who do good, who have good reputations, who do good work, you know, talk to them, watch what they do, ask them a lot of questions. Oftentimes they can open a door for you or just from surely looking at what they do or reading what they write, you can learn a lot and kind of mold what you do and make it better going forward. And so I guess those would be the two things. Work hard and surround yourself with good people. Um and, and I'd love to be that person to someone else and kind of pass it on. You know, pass on some of my mentors down and, and help other people. And I I kind of feel like I do that sometimes when we're editing some of these pieces, I try to try to help mold and and uh, help out new writers and help them try to get better and tell good stories and all of that stuff and hopefully I do that effectively to that I, I think this could be a rabbit hole for me personally but I just feel like the, the overall quality of some of the writing and the stories is you know we need we need the next generation of the the Gene Hills and the Burton Spillers and and all of that you know sometimes that might be lacking you know there's less magazines less books being published less Really high quality writing, and I want to see that continue. I want I want to see the next generation of both great writers and great storytellers continuing in the future. So that's kind of just my personal bent, but um, but that's that's kind of the way I feel.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. You and I have chatted about that before, and and I feel like certainly when you mention people like Gene Hill and Burton Spiller, I mean that writing is you know it stands the test of time. It stands alone, and it. It was done in an era where it was, you know, it the landscape was entirely different in that there were not a million content creation outlets for people to go and and you probably, you know, stuff was I think stuff was a lot more highly vetted because those channels were limited and there was a lot of competition for those channels. Now, the competition for particular any one particular content creation channel is is. It's probably not as much because really any anybody can have a platform. So it's kind of kind of interesting. But the point that you're making in that, you know, anybody can go write an article. That doesn't mean it's going to be good. And it's what you're looking for is where is that truly, truly good stuff? Where is the storytelling? Where is the where is the creativity? Where's the art? And and that's what you're trying to highlight, which, you know, again, we've talked about that before. It's it's interesting and I certainly want to see that continue as well.
1: Yeah, I think you know storytelling is kind of an annoying buzzword for people. Everybody wants to be storytellers, but there's there's a difference than some of the quick, the quick info articles you see right. out there these days, and then you know, like like an art, like you said, you know, a really good story that that um, that tells a narrative that has emotion that that uh, has meaning that maybe when you're done with it, it kind of leads you to thinking about something, you know that. Those sometimes are are hard to find, and and uh, you know, hopefully through some of the work I'm doing with these magazines, I can help with the, with the existing writers who do a great job at it, but also kind of find some new writers that are that are going to be uh, kind of carrying the torch going forward. I think that's an important thing for for the industry, for upland hunting, for all of that stuff. And and I, I, again, I just kind of feel lucky that I get to do it every
0: day. Yeah, so. yeah, definitely so you're you're reading all the old books and the old stories and you're hunting with English setters and you're hunting rough grouse in the north woods i bet you're I bet you're the kind of guy that carries an old side by side shotgun, aren't you Matt Oh uh, yeah <laughs> <laughs> I, i'm am a young guy I mean
1: people look at me and they think I'm a millennial technically. I like to remind them real quick that i'm I'm a Gen Xer by one year. I look <laughs> a lot younger than I. And I really am, but uh, but, um, but I'm a traditionalist at heart, to be honest with you. Yeah, yeah, I I respect the old ways. I also am excited to see the next generation do it too, but I can't help but, I mean, I don't, honestly, I'm the kind of guy that is, as long as you hunt, I don't care what kind of gun you have. I really don't. You can shoot whatever you want, but for me personally, I'm more of a traditionalist, and I, I have a, right now, I'm, my favorite gun is. Is an old. I uh, just bought it, and this last fall was my first year with it. But an old Fox Sterlingworth, um, nothing fancy, 20 gauge, um, beat up. You know, if, if only I could tell the story of the birds this gun shot back in the day. And, you know, it's one of those where you wish you could, but it's just, it's just. I just enjoy carrying an old side by side and hunting the woods with it. It's just a classic old gun that has stories behind it, and I think that's a cool thing for me personally.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I knew that you had picked up that gun within the last year, so it's not like it wasn't, you, you haven't been carrying it forever, and, and again, I think there's there's room for people's interest to grow and change and develop over time. What what was your experience with the fox in the woods this fall? Was there a learning curve trying to shoot it? Uh, how'd it go?
1: Yeah, it wasn't bad. Super, super light. Uh, you can shoot it real quick. Um, I had it I haven't shot double triggers a lot over my career, to okay. be honest with you. So I, I've done that. A, it was a while back when I did. When I was growing up, I had an old double trigger, and I kind of learned to shoot. But it's been a long time since I did. You know, with the new guns and most everything being single triggers, it took me a little bit of time to get back in the saddle of shooting a double trigger this fall. So that was a little bit of a learning thing. But I shot, I shot hounds with it, and sharp tails, and grouse, and woodcock, and you know, shot a lot of rounds out of that thing this fall, and I, I really enjoy it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it's just fun to have a double gun. I, I grew up with double guns my, in a weird way. I, my dad shot, my grandpa shot side-by-side, side, my dad did, my uncle Tom did. I kind of grew up in a side-by-side family, and it, we never shot anything really super fancy. A lot of cheap side-by-sides growing up. I had a, my favorite gun when I... I think I was 16 or 17, I got it from my dad. It was a Charles Daly, side-by-side. I still have it. And if there's a gun that I shoot best, it's that's probably the cheapest gun I own, and that's the one I shoot the best. It's just the way it works. But I grew up in a side-by-side family and uh, kind of continuing that tradition as I go forward.
0: So. That's usually how it goes. I think the the gun that you kind of grow up with, or at least the gun that you get started with, you're not so concerned about what kind of gun it is. You just... You, you're more much more concerned with the birds and you just most people tend to shoot that gun really well and i think that probably has a lot to do with the fact that they're not really thinking about the gun and it's just it's doing its job which is cool you mentioned uh that you uh you shot huns and sharptails which reminds me i forgot that you typically go out west in september tell me a little bit about that trip how to go this year
1: yeah i did it solo this year uh um, oh, really? i went out yeah went out to montana by myself for the opener and uh Really enjoyed it. Honestly, I went to a new area that I hadn't hunted before, so I was hunting some new spots. Um, I got got pointed in the right direction from a friend, and then um, just spent a lot of time out there. It was it was fun because my pup was real real young at that point, you know, eight months, nine months old, and uh, just letting him roll on the prairie and just spent a lot of time kind of getting him working on handling with him, which was fun. I uh, found some birds. It wasn't hot and heavy. Honestly, this year I. From the reports I've seen, just anecdotally, some people, especially early season, had some trouble finding birds. That was definitely true for me. We did, we did find enough to, to keep us keep us happy and and uh, to have some action. But but it was good, yeah. So we um, just quick shrub tail and hung hunt for me. And um, but the years past, I've been going out a little bit further. Further west and hunting blue grouse for a few days, which I really, really enjoyed too. I wasn't able to do that this year, but that, thats always a good hunt too.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So you st- kicked the season off out west, and then you did a lot of hunting back home, and now you're gonna you're gonna shut it down way down south.
1: Yep, I'm. i to mean, I hunt hunting my t-shirt, enjoy some sunny weather, and hunt some wintering woodcock and write a couple articles about it. So that's kind of, the, that sums up my life these days.
0: What will the cover look like when you're chasing woodcock in Texas here in, in a couple of weeks?
1: It's a great question. When I, when I started doing it, uh, my dad and I started doing it probably five years ago and we just did it on our own and learned by trial and error. And it honestly took me a day and a half, maybe two days to figure it out because the cover looks way different than than my traditional woodcock covers here in Minnesota. But um, what we did is we found uh, low-lying lands, you know, um, river bottoms, river edges were the best. Uh, River bottoms where you could find, I guess, what you would call down there, the same as here, early successional habitat, you know, the thick, gnarly stuff, um, as close to water, as close to that lonely, soft soil as, as possible, and you just put on miles until you find the birds and that's what we did and we found some pockets and and, uh, had some success I mean we've done it enough now that we kind of know where to go and again just like we were talking about before through trial and error and effort um, we've kind of dialed in like we can drive by an area and say yeah there's probably woodcock in there you know and so we go and have fun. And my dad retired down to Houston. I don't get to hunt with him as much as I, I used to or as much as I did growing up. So it's kind of our traditional hunt together. We hunt woodcock in Texas, which is kind of cool. So
0: Awesome. Is it, is it public land or private land?
1: Public land. Yeah. Okay. It's uh, in East Texas called the Piney Woods. Um, Texas is not known for a lot of public land opportunities Right uh, across the state. Texas is big. Uh, it's a lot of pay, pay to play. Type of scenario, which you know we take for granted, how much public land opportunities we have here in Minnesota. It's not the same down there at all, but it is actually hunting public land um, down there. And, it's, and woodcock are not a really well, from my experience, they're not a really well-known species to hunt down there. And I never, I don't think I've seen another woodcock hunter. I know there are a few around, um, and there's a lot of quail hunters in the area. There's a lot of bird dog guys, but I don't think they pinpoint woodcock as much as as uh some of those
0: other birds so cool well that's that's good to hear i knew that uh there you know there's not a ton of public land down there but but there is some and and there's hunting opportunity on it so that's fun it's always good to highlight that well matt this has been a really fun conversation. I, uh, I thank you very much for coming on the podcast. I'm sure this won't be the last time we talk to you. We will look forward to upcoming issues of the Project Upland magazine, and certainly folks should check out Covey Rise and uh, Rough Grouse Society magazines uh, to see more of your work. Keep it up. Keep doing a good job. Good luck hunting, and uh, we'll we'll chat soon, buddy.
1: Yeah, thanks, Nick. And, and just like to, to mention, if anybody has any questions or wants to talk writing or contributing to the magazine, um, any of these magazines, or just wants to tell hunting stories, so get a hold of me anytime. I, my email is uh, Solbergm at com, and uh, I'd love to chat with anybody about any of
0: this stuff. Perfect. Thanks for sharing that, Matt. I will make sure to put a link in the show post when I put that up, and hopefully you hear for from the next great writer. All right. So I'm good, Nick. Thanks for your time. <laughs> Take care, man. Have a good weekend. Yeah, you too. See ya. You've been listening to the Project Upland Podcast. As your host, Nick Larson, I'd like to thank you all for listening, tuning in each and every week. And I'd like to thank our partners on the Project Upland Podcast, bringing you each and every episode of the show. We thank you. Heinrich Grouse Camp, Onyx Maps, Gumleaf USA, and Dogtra callers. You could be next week's winner of the Project Upland podcast giveaway. All you gotta do is make a meaningful contribution to the show. Leave us a rating, leave us a review, subscribe to the show, share the podcast post or send us some feedback or a guest suggestion. Appreciate all my listeners. I'd love to hear from you. Send me an email at nick.larsen at northwoodscollective.com. Head over to projectupland.com for more great stuff. Blogs, articles, gun reviews, book reviews, films, magazine link. It's all there. Head over to projectupland.com. That's it for this episode of the Project Upland podcast. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you on the next show.